millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to episode number 14, the first episode of the 2022 calendar year. And we're picking up with part two of Musket to Rifle. Now, it has to be said that I was really gutted that I missed the first episode of this uh, sort of two-part series. I was a little bit under the weather. Um, I'm a massive fan of uh, British yeah, sort of military small arms of the you know, sort of 17th, 18th, 19th century. Um, but the, the lads, Jake and Pete, did a fantastic job of it. Done me proud. And, um, you know, they kind of took us up in the previous episode up to uh, the end of the 19th century. So that is where we're going to pick up from. And I'll be honest, I don't know that much about uh, weapons of the sort of uh, late 19th, 20th century, and even into the 21st century for that matter. Uh, I know enough to get me by, but I know that uh, both Pete and Jake are sort of specialists in the field uh, in regards to uh, those two sort of uh, periods. So um, we come to the end of the 19th century. Um, and if my memory serves me well, we're, we're sort of working into the realms of the introduction of the uh, Lee Enfield. So take it away, guys. Yes, we are. So we um, we left off in 1895 with the introduction of the magazine Lee Enfield, which is, all intents and purposes, without going into lots of detail, a copy of a Lee Metford. Um, the only differences between the two are slight machining differences, like with the barrel and things like that. Um, also, it's uh, smokeless powder now as well. So we're not using dirty black powder anymore. This is actually using cordite rounds now as well. So this this rifle will take us into the Second Boer War. It will. Yes, indeed. And um, from there, it will, as Peter says, through the Second Boer War, into the sort of very early um, actions uh, in the early 20th century. So we have like things like Omdurman, et cetera, as well, will be used there. And then the progression, um, what we know today as the Lee Enfield. Indeed, but it also, it will still be in service during the First World War as well, especially with some of these uh, territorial battalions that went over quite early as well. Um, and the Navy was still using them as well. Even post-First post, uh, World War, they could still be seen with some, with some people as well. But obviously, the, uh, so with the magazine Lee Enfield, it was then decided at the turn of the century was that they needed a new rifle. Um, one of the drawbacks to the magazine Lee Enfield was it had a curved round to it. So most round, like a lot of rifle rounds today, they have a pointed nose. The Lee Enfield round at the time, it was actually curved. So it makes a lot of damage as soon as it hits somebody. It does make a bit of a mess. Um, but some of they did find with the Boer War, was what the Mauser rounds that were pointed, they had a better, better flatter trajectory and a lot more accurate as well. So they thought, right, we need to start working on something. And so come to uh, 1904, we then had the introduction of the SMLE or the short magazine Lee Enfield, which 
in my opinion, um, I believe it to be one of the best rifles ever produced. Um, and the SMLE would take us into the First World War, Second War, used by us and uh, the Empire troops as well, or Commonwealth. Um, and over up until very recently, the SMLE had um, stopped being used by the Indian Police Force up until very, very recently. Um, so a very good rifle, very reliable rifle, and a very um, accurate weapon to fire as well. But the other good thing about the SMLE as well is that all these um, personal weapons that uh, we've covered, the vast majority of them all had a carbine variant of it for cavalry. Um, but with the SMLE, because they actually shortened it, um, they decided that they don't need a carbine variant of the short magazine, the Enfield. So now we've got a, a, a standard weapon across the board. So for cavalry and for infantry as well. So that's, um, so that's obviously saved on cost. Um, something to be mass produced a lot more as well. So it's, not easy, it's a lot easier to manufacture. We haven't got to use different tools, different bits and pieces. So, so yeah, so we've now very much standardized ourselves, haven't we? Absolutely. And I completely agree with uh, Pete's sentiment. It's probably one of one of the best, if not the um, best service rifles ever made um, across the board out of all countries, really. Its service life was very, very long, as, as Pete's just said, and its functionality and reliability and its steadiness as a weapon. Because at the end of the day, um, unlike, say, some firearms that have come out through history, etc., this rifle was meant to be used and abused because it was being used by the by the average soldier it wasn't meant to be sort of um handled with handled with like gloves etc so it served its it served its time very very well and uh served um with distinction it is an amazing rifle um you know the, the smle is fantastic bit of kit even you know through our through our modern sort of uh eyes and hands for that matter it, you know it, it works like a like a dream having you know use them on like trench event and other events it's a fantastic piece of kit it really really is and obviously it, it stood us in good stead for for the first world war so it was a neat little segue into that period the sort of rumors are going around my mind and i've heard from a number of sources the germans um held the the british rate of fire in very sort of high esteem uh, maybe you can open up and talk a little bit about that pete you're probably best place i should imagine yeah, so that, this was in the uh, early stage of the First World War. So this is when we first encountered the German army at Mons. Um, obviously, our lads had already got themselves situated. And when the Germans come over the ridge, so to speak, uh, we just we just let loose on them. Um, and I said before in the Christmas Truce episode that these were, these were professional soldiers who were very, very good at what they did. But they also shot for their pay as well. So... Another thing with these pre-war regulars, it wouldn't be uncommon for quite a lot of them to actually have um, cross guns on their left cuff, uh, denouncing them as a marksman because they used to shoot for pay. So, um, and also having those cross guns gave you extra money. I think it was something like six pence a day more than you would do if you were just a normal private soldier. So, so to retain that extra six pence a day, you're going to be very good at what you do. Um, but because of that rate of fire, so you so the rate of fire, you're, you could you could easily let off about fifteen good, yeah, fifteen aim shots a minute. That is, um, and that's including a reload as well. So what we got with this as well, we've also got charging, so we're not using magazines anymore. So with the, we've got magazines on the rifle, but you're not interchanging mags um, with this rifle. You're actually using five round stripper clips. So there's a charging bridge on top of the rifle. 
So you place it into the char into the charging bridge, push the rounds down with your thumb, take the um, clip out, push the bolt forward, and you're going again. And it's got a very quick rate of fire. And I said, these blokes are very well trained. And that's why the Germans were so shocked when they come up against these blokes, because they were absolutely battering them. And the reason that they could keep up this high rate of fire as well is unlike their German counterparts, it's also the action of the rifle. So the German Mausers are using something, uh, using something called a Huntsman's action. So Huntsman's action, it's a bolt, but the bolt is straight. So if you're aiming at a target, you fire, you've got to take your eye off the target, take the bolt, pull it back, push it back forward the chamber the next round, then bring it back up to uh, fire. With the SMLE, you don't need to do that because it's got a curved bolt. Because of that curved bolt, you could, act, if, so if say you've got um, a moving target, you can follow that target. You might miss him first time off, but you don't need to take your eye off him. So all you've got to do is keep firing, pulling the trigger until he drops. So that's another reason why that rate of fire is quite high. It's really interesting. So with, with the outbreak of the First World War, um, I kind of know a little bit of a background, but not much. Um, so there was they started toying with the idea of a different pattern of rifle and, and even ammunition prior to the First World War breaking out. But then it broke out and they kind of abandoned those plans and they started making kind of, uh, for want of a better phrase, an economy version of the rifle. And pattern 14, obviously that stayed you know, in emergency use into the Second World War as well. Uh, but it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about that, actually. I must admit, I don't particularly know much about that. And I know you've got a, a goldmine of, of knowledge and respect to it. Yeah. So with, as he as Peter explained earlier, with um, the Boer War, et cetera, and the actions we fought against uh, the Boers, where they were their Mauser rifles with Spitzer cartridges and we were using uh, bottlenose cartridges, et cetera. They were seen to be more accurate, much more flat trajectory, et cetera. And it was seen that we needed to match that. So Britain went to a program of developing their own kind of Mauser action rifle um, with a sort of new design round, somewhat close to 303, but much more sort of flat trajectory, et cetera. Ended up being 303 in the end um, and the Mark VII ammunition to be exact, um, because it was much more better for the uh, time period, et cetera. Um, so these rifles developed, so the P13, the pattern 13 rifle was developed it was still a cock on um cock and closing action like the smle um but with a mauser style of uh action in general really um much more heavier rifle so um much more durable in that way and a very very good target rifle um and this would be developed and as steve said it was sort of dropped to sort of a certain extent um when war broke out really or just up to lead up to the war um just because to put in a new rifle in that sort of shorter space of time when you got war breaking out is not a good idea um but the these rifles the ones that were made the 13s and mainly the 14s would be used as second line rifles and depending on the units and um, that went out some of them saw action within at the front itself as well as well as the long lees um of the previous generation as well um but the contracts to build these rifles were sent out to the united states so they were building pattern 14 rifles for us um and then when america entered the war they would then adopt their own version in uh, 30 or 6 which would then become the pattern uh, 1917 as well so that's sort of the um progression of that sort of rifle but at the end of the day britain as its primary firearm kept the 
number one Mark III, later the number one Mark III style, the SMLE, um, right up through the Great War and um, into the next. Yeah, they did. And then in come to the 1930s, the so just on sort of the brink of the Second World War started, although the SMLE had gone to its sort of basics in the sense that there's no longer a magazine cut off, um, they don't have volley sites on the side, uh, that because the volley sites and the magazine cut off was something they brought away from the magazine Lee Enfield, what they were using, you know, in the Boer War. But the type of war they're fighting, that's useless, having the... Uh, there's no point having a magazine cut off and there's no point having um, a volley site on the side um, because having a volley site and that sort of warfare that they're fighting is, well, is, well, pointless. That's why they got rid of it. So they went to the drawing board, although the SMLE being as good as a rifle that it is, they needed to try and make it simpler because there's still parts of it that had to be made by skilled workers. So they then started drawing up these plans, but then suddenly... World War Two happens, and they had to sort of just put it on the back burner a little bit. So, in that early period of the uh, Second World War, the SMLE is, is still prevalent. But then, when we come to 1941, this design that they brought up, as in the early stages of, um, actually went into production. They said, "Yep, green light, let's do it." So they then brought out the Number Four or the Number Four Mark One, Lee Enfield, which is a lot more simpler. Same principle as the SMLE, but a lot more simpler to produce. And it's also metal saving as well, because obviously we've got to try and retain as much metal as we can. Weight's pretty much similar. Um, the muzzle is different now. So at the end of the muzzle, the SMLE, it's a, like square-ended. Now that's disappeared. So now what you've got now is you actually have a muzzle that comes out about two inches, two, three inches or so. But with that, that also means that the bayonet's now changing. So you haven't got this great big sword bayonet on the end. So with that in mind of saving metal, they then bring out the spike bayonet or the pig stick, as it got known as. So that could just click on the end and you still got that uh, weapon for going in with the assault. Yeah, exactly what Pete said, really. <clears throat> it was a much more simplified version of what was the SMLE at that point, uh, with obviously with new techniques and new production methods that had They'd learnt through the uh, Great War and into the 30s. It was definitely a, a progress of uh, much more better machining, simplified, etc., and a weapon for the new age. Um, obviously, it's still it's still a bolt action rifle. Um, like most uh, countries at that point, were still using bolt action rifles. Um, some countries were experimenting with self loading rifles, and we were, we were the same. We did it the same during the Great War. We experimented with self loading rifles, but none of them came to fruition. And the standard bow action was still the main service rifle for the British Army and the Empire. But, but during the process of the number four being adopted, they were already looking into sort of what can replace it or what can be used, what can be made more effective by this system. Um, so that's how the number five or how it sort of kind of came to be known was the jungle carbine and was developed through the number four um, and for use in for a lighter weapon it was a carbine at the end of the day to be used as a lighter weapon more easy handle more easy to carry for say like paratroops or use in the jungle etc um that's sort of how it got its name of the jungle carbine where but i think there's a myth that with the jungle carbine or the number five i should say that it saw action during the second world war which it didn't really none of them got out to the far east um by the time the war ended some of them um saw service with the paras 
when they let when they liberated Norway, but it never saw action in the Far East. It did after the war, but uh, that's um, we'll get into that in a second, though. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, I know the uh, Second Battalion, the Ox and Bucks, but just before they went to Palestine, just after the Second World War, because they went from Germany to Palestine, um, and they got refitted with uh, number fives to go out there with. They did. Um, but I think they actually got refitted with them while they were still in Germany, though, just before they went. They did. Um, but yeah, it was um, all right. Weapon. But the thing was, it weren't like the intention was there. You can see what you can see where they were going with with that design. But they, they even even then they were like, actually, it's not that good because um, you're still firing the 303 cartridge with it. It's been cut down. So it kicks massively because you haven't got so you haven't got that length to try and help you with that recoil. Either. Although they have put a rubber butt, there is a. Um, you had, instead of having a, a brass plate or metal plate at the uh, butt of the rifle, they now put this rubber this uh, rubberized stopper at the back. But even still, it's not it's not ideal. So that so you'll you'll see um, a lot of troops in Germany issued with it during um, the uh, post war period. Um, yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of photographs of my of my grand uh, when he was posted in Germany during the Berlin airlift. There's photo, like, there's photographs I've got of him in in their barrack block. And you can actually see the number fives uh, racked up in the barrack room. Yeah, indeed. Um, and as you said about sort of the um, the characteristics of the number five with the rubber butt pad, the problem is as well, obviously they put it on there to help with the recoil, but the actual rubber butt pad itself was smaller than the actual stock itself. So it kind of focused all the um, uh, kick of the rifle into one specific area, which wasn't exactly great. There were problems with some of them with, say, what were kind of known as, say, the Wandering Zero, but it was sort of a, um, a manufacturing fault, really, was the case of where the lightning process, because the rifles were lightened incre incredibly, really. So, obviously, the stock was cut down, the barrel was cut down, there were lightning cuts done on, in, um, on the top of the, well, just in the, on the barrel, just beyond the receiver, um, in the way the bolt was hollowed, the uh, bolt handle was uh, parts of it were hollowed out to make it lighter again. Um, all this contributes, and as Steve said, uh, Pete said, sorry, you're still firing a full cart, full rifle cartridge of 303. It's a lot of power. Um, and with the rifle itself, it was it was it was introduced in around 1944, late 44. It was made obsolete in 1948. Um, so it doesn't really have a long life in the way of like being um, technically serviceable, really. Obviously, it was used well into the 1950s in, say, Malaya, um, etc., then to be replaced by what would come after it. But um, it served it served its time very well. In the jungles of Malaya, it's been light, um, very, very handy. And and to us, your only co your contacts are at close range. So having, like, say, the Wandering Zero issue wasn't really that much of an issue, really, um, when you're dealing with people at, say, less than 50 yards in dense, in dense uh, jungle, really. So... Um, I would say a very, very effective rifle for what it was used for, really. Yeah, it, it, it filled a gap, didn't it? They, they yeah. had an idea which they thought was going to work, um, but then literally within a few years of it actually going into production, they're like, actually, it done. So that brings on to the next um, segment of this is obviously during, during the war, there was um, self-loading rifles actually in service with various armies, apart from our one. <laughs> um, so the Germans were doing it, the Russians were doing it, and 
the probably most famously the Americans did it because I was with the M1 Grands. Um, so this will bring us now into the new designer rifle that goes into the 1950s, doesn't it, Jake? Yeah, it does indeed. So as Pete said, <clears throat> throughout the war, we were um, looking into new projects, new ideas. And uh, main, uh, the main thing is a British homegrown project, really. Um, and we wanted to have a new rifle for ourselves. So in the post-war period, we want to look for a placement for the, for now the aging Lee Enfield rifle, the number fours and number fives, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so as taken from what we'd seen from the Germans during the war, we'd say um, the Gewehr 43s and the later Sturmgewehr as well, uh, seeing how they performed, we wanted say an assault rifle as it was sort of became known. Um, so we started the uh, EM project, uh, the EM1 and EM2, um, later sort of to be known as the uh, rifle number nine. So this um, has sort of characteristics which I think people will recognise today as similar to what we would, what the British Army is using today, but very much a sort of like space age kind of wood and steel construction with like um, at the time as well a very very uh, advanced for its time as well. It had an optical sight. Um, which was very, very far ahead of anything really at the time. It was absolutely fascinating learning about all these different kind of uh, variants and how, how quickly uh, you know, the British Army adopted rifles, dropped them, and was trying to, you know, search for rifles that were better than what they already have, but then coming back to, you know, sort of what they started with. But after the break, we'll, uh, we'll pick up uh, post-World War II We'll talk about some of the, um, you know, sort of developments in the 50s uh, onwards to the modern day small arm used by the British soldier. If you're enjoying this podcast and want access to exclusive content, early access to our monthly feature documentary and private podcasts, amongst many of the benefits, then consider joining our Patreon from as little as £1. By doing so, you'll get access to all these features, plus your support will help us to keep history alive. Hit the link in the description of this episode and navigate to our Patreon to sign up. Yeah, so moving on from the EM2, going into the SLR, um, which basically replaces it fully, really. Um, used throughout the Cold War, very, very good weapon. Uh, 7.62, uh, box magazine, um, Belgium design, so Fabric National, very, very good rifle. As I said, used throughout the Cold War, Falklands, Aden, etc., 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 um, and throughout that period, though, throughout the 70s, the British Army was looking to replace it, though. But um, any other thoughts on the SLR, though, guys? Yes, the SLR has, has sort of gone down in the folklore, dare I say, of the British Army. So in terms of if, if you get any sort of um, veteran who served in the British uh, Armed Forces and used the, was lucky enough to use the SLR at any point, I think if you put any, any, um, any rifle or weapon in front of um, in front of that veteran from the British Army sort of arsenal and say, choose a weapon out of all of those, um, nine times out of 10, that, that guy is going to go straight for the SLR and say, this was a fantastic bit of kit. And I think that stands testament to the fact of just how, how uh, successful it was. But, uh, you know, with the number of friends who I've got who've served or are serving in the armed forces uh, now or have served very recently, the more recent rifle doesn't seem uh, as popular. But I think Pete Neal is going to be the man to pick up on the point of the SLR moving through uh, into the SA-80 realms. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of the soldiers that I've spoken to of that period have all said the SLR was the best weapon they ever fired. Even to ones who I know who um, 
use that weapon prior to uh, I say prior, but uh, they're in that inter interchange when the when they got their SLRs taken away from them and given their SA80s, and they're like, why why did this weapon have to go? Because it was so good. Um, so that now brings us into our next segment. So we're now coming into the SA80 generation. So going as far back as the 1960s, the Americans have already adopted an assault rifle um, with a smaller caliber uh, of 5.56, which would be the M16 assault rifle. Obviously, it, obviously, like a lot of rifles uh, like that, they they were they had to be tweaked and all the rest of it to make them work really well. But even during the 1970s, the British Army was actually acquiring M16s from the Americans because the SLS, is, so you've got to think of what's going on in the 1970s. Um, so in the 70s, you've got Northern Ireland is obviously happening and the environment that an SLR is designed for, because an SLR is designed for open warfare. It's, that's designed for fighting in the countryside. But now you've got British soldiers walking in an urban environment and it's it's a little bit too much. So you'll actually, so you'll start finding M60s. So you'll see photographs of blokes in Northern Ireland with M16s. Not everybody. Um, it was usually a lot of section commanders, or platoon commanders, platoon sergeants. Usually, you'd find with them if they if they decide they weren't going to carry um, a submachine gun. Special forces as well. Even by that point in the 70s, the um, the SAS were were adopted M16s as well. So with that yeah. being said, they're. Um, they're now going. We need. We need to catch up with the Americans now. Um, we need to think of something. So they go over to the drawing board. So when we spoke about the number nine earlier, is the number nine could easily be said is like that could be the father of the SA80 in that look, not identical, but that look um, in the placement where the magazine housing is, um, and it's just sort of generic kind of shape to it. So. In the Falklands War, there was a trial, although vast majority of soldiers all went over with SLRs and uh, the other weapons that infantrymen carry. Um, there was some Royal Marine commandos that went over with this new SA-80 assault rifle, or the L-85, as it should be called, L-85 SA-80. So they'd done the combat trial in the Falklands. They come back with it, and they said the goods, the bads, and all the rest of it. Um, so then by 1985, they then put this into production. There was a lot of, a bit like the uh, M16, there was a lot of TV, a lot, lot of teething problems with the uh, SA80, um, where you'd hear these horror stories where blokes would go onto an assault course and just come back with a pistol grip and things like that. Um, so now we've got an assault rifle, which is more suited to the type of warfare or conflicts, I should say, that the British Army is uh, involving itself in. And uh, as you said, there was a lot of teething problems with it. And and like with the M16, a lot of teething problems. Even the British Army in, in Borneo had teething problems with the M16, but uh, those things were ironed out eventually. But I think a lot of guys would admit that with the adoption of the SA-80 in Northern, for example, in Northern Ireland, my dad um, can confer this as well, it was a lot easier in doorways and getting out, in and out of Land Rovers and God knows what else um, compared to the SLR. No matter how good the SLR was, it wasn't that handy in a way. So, um, yeah, it's it's very much a different change of pace, really. But uh, it's, and its main action was seen in the Gulf War as its first sort of uh, port of call, really. 
um, where it first was Saracen, it didn't do greatly in the sort of sand environments of Kuwait and Iraq, but uh, but it but it it pulled its weight in the end of it, and um, it would go on and obviously still being used today. Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, but it did take a few good a good decade to uh, get right because then when in the early 2000s they were like we really need to sort this out um so the SA80A2 made its appearance so uh, it so the all intents and purposes exactly the same rifle just that it's some better machine parts um notably the cocking handle um so the cocking handle on SA80 on the uh, L85 variant it's just uh it's just a normal cocking out. It's just a little sort of pin that comes out. This time round with the A2 variant, it's actually quite chunky, so it's easy to grip hold of. Because as some blokes are always saying, it's like it, it's there, but you could easily it could easily sort of slip out your hands, and that's something they'd find quite often. So with the new variant, you now got this like almost looks like a teardrop. Yeah, it, it's also it was, yeah, it's also designed to help with um, injecting the brass as well, which was a problem with the original variant as well. Yeah, it does. It gives it more direction. So with that curvature, there's also a metal plate in there as well. So when the rounds are ejecting, it is pushing them away. It's not sort of spraying around everywhere like the uh, L85 variant was. It's now actually pushing them into a into a better direction. And with that, with the A2, they start adding bits and pieces onto it because from the so from that, you then start seeing grenade launchers being put underneath them. Um, then you start seeing the early sort of rail systems being added also, and which then brings you on to the uh, A3 is what the British Army is using today. Again, same rifle, just different components, uh, some better made components. It's now relying more on a rail system. So uh, where you'd have a handguard, with the last two versions, there'd be a handguard, unless, unless you had um, a grenade launcher on the bottom of it. Um, that's just a rail now, and you've got a and you've got a foregrip. So we go into a foregrip, but that foregrip has also got a uh, bipod on there as well. Um, so there. Yeah, so now the the SA eighty is actually a very 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 good assault rifle. Um, they've spent millions of pounds to where they got. It's, ta- it's taken over thirty years, hmm. but. Even from the A2, like even when they did, even when they made the changes to the A2, it made it a very, very good assault rifle. Definitely, definitely, because it was um, uh, it was altered by H and K or Hector and Cock, which mm-hmm. um, did a lot of the work on the inside as well. And then obviously with the add-ons of um, trying to update the rifle for like the new age of during the Afghan war, etc., of like adding like the Danny defense system, rail system as well, the new sights, etc., which all led as into as you just said to the A3 as well. Yeah, absolutely. And also, when you come into the early 2000s as well, we go back to carbines. as well. Not, not as in across the board, but they do bring a carbine variant into it, which is still used today by um, people like military police. They can have them in the cars. Um, but obviously, they did experiment with the carbine variant, even to its adoption in, like, 85. They had these carbines come out, but they weren't too good. And... But they knew, but they do now have quite a good carbine version to uh, be used by that by those sort of blokes. Yeah, definitely. Um, and obviously, with the carbines, the SAE series of rifles and and firearms, etc., was a whole broad thing from like squad support weapons, etc., etc., et to sort of have a more broader of replacing 
everything in general. The SAAT was there to, to replace the main service rifle and the SMG at the same time. So it was uh, it was a big step in it was a big step in the right direction. But uh, um, practice in a way it was it needed a lot more ironing out. And now with the thirty years that have gone by, it's uh, become probably one of the best uh, service rifles in the world. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's also very accurate because I've 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 fired um, the SA eighty and it's and it is actually very good. I, I've got no problem with it whatsoever. No, absolutely. I don't know if uh, Steve wants to uh, think a little bit here. Obviously, you know, don't know a great deal about the SA eighty, but uh, don't know what, what your thoughts on. Obviously, you got to uh, have a look at one. Uh, I think down at uh, the Lord Mayor's, I think I believe. So, uh, don't know what your thoughts are. Well, I don't know how you could say I don't know anything about an SAAT. I was in Army Cadets, <laughs> don't you know? Um, no, joking apart, the only time I have fired um, the cadet version many moons ago in the early 2000s of the uh, of the SAAT, obviously on single shot. And it is a good rifle. You know, it, it's, um, it is accurate. I used to fire it on uh, Kingsbury Rangers, which is a really good range. That's where we, well, I was based with cadets. And, you know, it's a nice bit of kit. And, you know, if you know your way around it and you're used to it, you know, you do... Uh, you can get the best out of it, but it's always worth remembering. I think with any, and it, this is true, stands you know, true for any period in time that your weapon is always made by the lowest bidder. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, they do. They do like to cut costs where they can, don't they? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, I think because with the uh, L85 SA80 series rifles, it was uh, obviously designed by guys who never really designed a, a firearm before, so. <laughs> You can see that the problems that will emerge out of that. So, uh, but thankfully, um, those things have been ironed out. Obviously, there's still little issues here and there, depending on who's using it, really. But uh, I think, as I said before, it's probably one of the best ones out there. Excellent stuff. Well, cheers, guys, for your insight on uh, those sort of whistle-stop tour of, uh, you know, firearms used in the British Army from, well, the English Civil War all the way through to the modern day. And it's been you know, an amazing journey, some real rapid changes in the development of firearms and ammunition for that matter as well. But then also some mainstays of, of weapons as well, very subtle changes over, you know, prolonged periods. But uh, hopefully you guys listening have enjoyed it and you've learned something from uh, not just this, this episode, but the uh, previous part as well. And if you want to help support uh, the podcast and keep us going and uh, also get access to exclusive content, including uh, private podcasts as well, uh, hit the link in the description, navigate over to our Patreon account, sign yourself up from as little as £1 a month. And uh, as I say, you get all that exclusive content and uh, you'll help support our endeavours too.